0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 4. Actually, turn with me to Haggai first. Just one book right before. We will be, thank you, we will be studying out of Zechariah 4, but we need to start in Haggai at the very end of Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. And the reason why, both in Haggai 2.20 and in Zechariah chapter 4, we're dealing with visions about the same person, about Zerubbabel. And so, if you guys remember where we're at with our minor prophet study, we're post exilic by this time, meaning we have come out of captivity. And our two main leaders of the Israelites at this time are Zerubbabel, the governor, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the high priest. In this case, we're going to be talking about Zerubbabel. Last time we studied, we had a vision about Joshua, but this time we're going to have visions about Zerubbabel. Now, the reason why we're going to Haggai chapter 2 first is because when we studied Haggai, we stopped actually at verse 19, but coincidentally, I realized it worked out because of bringing this part of Haggai and the next part of Zechariah together. Remember, Haggai and Zechariah your two prophets, prophesying at the same time to the same people for the same thing, motivating the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. Get back to work is what the message is for. We see that in the book of Ezra being a history book. Ezra chapter 5, here comes the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Obviously, they prophesy in very different ways. But here in Haggai chapter 2 verse 20... Read this with me. It's only three verses. He says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I underlined, make you like a signet ring, I have chosen you. This is in part a messianic prophecy. And what we're talking about, I'm going to tell you the overall purpose of what he's saying here, and then we'll dive into it a little bit. But this is overall messianic, talking about the Davidic line and Abraham's seed promise continuing on in the person of Zerubbabel. And he, Zerubbabel, is being used here to foreshadow the Messiah. If you look with me in Matthew chapter 1, hold your place here, but look with me in Matthew chapter 1. Y'all know it's in Matthew chapter one, the part that we always skip of Matthew, the genealogy. But watch what is said here down in verse twelve. We're seeing the line all the way of promise from Adam, from uh, Abraham, excuse me, all the way to Jesus. And in Matthew 1:12, he says, and after the deportation to Babylon, which is where we're at in our history, what we're reading, right? Uh, Forgive me for some of these names, but Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of, and who does that say? Zerubbabel. Who is it that this vision is to in Haggai and in Zechariah? To Zerubbabel, the same person. Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So do we see the importance of what we're talking about here? In our history, Zerubbabel, 11 generations later, was Jesus. This vision is going to start to make more sense ...with that in mind, especially with what he says at the end there... ...I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. God is saying here to him uh, in a symbolic way... ...that he would put this signet ring on Zerubbabel's hand... ...that it would stand for the ruler of the people of God right here. And he says, in essence, what we're talking about before that as well... ...overthrowing kingdoms and, and making you victorious... ...you're building this temple... This physical temple. And so I'm going to bless you physically. We saw that back in verse 15 of Haggai chapter 2. God saying, trust in me, keep being faithful, and you will prosper just as covenant would say that they would prosper. So he would bless them physically, but also, since you're doing right, I'm going to bless you spiritually you and my people will forever dwell in my house and be ruled by the one that's represented here by Zerubbabel. There is this foreshadow here of Zerubbabel, or with Zerubbabel, of Jesus who is coming. We have a messianic prophecy in Haggai about the church, and you have a messianic prophecy of sorts that is foreshadowing Christ. There's a lot of similarities between Zerubbabel and Jesus, and here's a few. First, this signet ring, this kingship, or this uh, civil authority, this leader of God's people. They're both in that position, right? In fact, Revelation 17, 14 says, they will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them. We know who that is, right? It's Jesus. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him who are called and chosen and faithful. But not only does He represent this in, in this sort of way, but Clearly, what we've already seen is Zerubbabel is a temple builder, much like Jesus would be as well. Matthew 16, 18, remember Jesus says, I tell you, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Both Zerubbabel here being the physical temple builder, Christ later coming to establish the spiritual temple of the church. Not only that, but Zerubbabel, we see in Ezra, leads the first large group of people out of Babylonian, or excuse me, at this time, Persian captivity. He is a leader out of bondage. The same way that when Jesus announced his ministry in Luke chapter 4, when he says, quoting from Isaiah, that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed... With Zerubbabel, it was a very physical, very literal captivity out of bondage that he was delivering his people, bringing his people from Persia, from Persian rule all the way to Jerusalem, to home base where they're supposed to be. But with Jesus, of course, we know that he leads us and gets us out of bondage to slavery of sin. And of course, both are chosen of God. He says quite clearly there, the last verse of Haggai 2, I have chosen you. There's a lot of verses you could look to see Jesus being the chosen of God. But I love what is said right after he's baptized in Luke chapter 3. When John the Baptist baptized him, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form of a dove. And he says, God says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. This is the guy that we've been waiting on. Later, Luke chapter 9 the Mount of Transfiguration we see this great event, and you see Peter and James and John, they wake up from their slumber. And Peter wants to build a, a temple, a tabernacle of sorts, a tent, he says, for those that he sees, Moses and Elijah there representing. And then there's Jesus there, but God says, he points to Jesus as if to say, "This is who you listen to. This is my son with whom I am well pleased." And so we see this foreshadowing and also this lineage of God protecting the seed promise going on through Zerubbabel. I think that that's some good background for us. But now let's get into Zechariah chapter 4. In my Bible, it's just one page over. In Zechariah chapter 4, again about Zerubbabel. A different prophet with a different message, but to the same person. In chapter four, this is the fifth vision of the book. And look at what takes place there in verse one through three. This is very much uh, just like revelation, where this is apocalyptic literature. So we look at it the same way, we interpret it all the same way. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, "What do you see?" And I said, I see and and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips uh, on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I did my best to find you a picture of this because... Reading through that, my brain just like stumbles on itself. I don't know about for you. This was the best one I could kind of come up with to kind of illustrate it. It's not perfect, but you'll get the idea. you got two olive trees, one on either side. you got the golden lampstand in the middle. The olive trees are feeding into this bowl, the oil that supplies the oil for the lamp to be lit on fire there. And you have to think that this would be an overwhelming experience, right, being awakened by an angel in this instance. I mean... How many times have we seen angels tell people, be not afraid, right? Because they're not the cute little baby cherubim ones, right? They're, they're scary, they're breathtaking. Uh, if they're not scary, they're absolutely breathtaking. But you got a lampstand, and you got two olive trees, one on each side. You know, these are two very traditional symbols for uh, the Israelites. Um, this lampstand, also called the menorah by some, um, seven-branch candlestick, but... There's a lot of symbolism that goes into talking about this. I'm not going to pretend to you that I'm an expert on this subject, okay? I stumbled over this, and and I thought this would be a quicker lesson, but the more I dived into this, the more I realized I didn't know, and the more I realized I wanted to share, but then I realized how much more I still didn't know. So I don't know everything. But I'm going to share with you what I do know, okay, to encourage you guys with this. I think this is a pretty cool picture. Look first, hold your place obviously. Look first with me in Exodus chapter 25. This is when this lampstand is first brought up. Now this lampstand that is in the vision, the details are a little bit different than what we see. But there is a lampstand very similar that is in the tabernacle, the mobile temple, and also later in the temple itself. And so it has a very specific purpose, and it was supposed to be made a very specific way. In uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 31, you could read this whole thing later on your own, but we'll point out just a few verses. Verse 31 says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. A lampstand shall be made of hammered works, its base, its stems, its cups, its uh, calyxes, if that's how you say that, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Look down verse 37 through 40. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongues and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. There's a specific way God wanted this thing to be built because it has specific symbolism. And uh, this lampstand is fueled by oil from olive trees. That's why in, in the vision and here in this picture, you got the olive trees feeding this oil into it. That's what was used to light it. And... There are many different commentators, many different uh, points of view, but I'm going to give you the bare bones of this. The light represented God's presence shining inside the temple itself over the table and illuminating the people. So you have two things there. You have illumination, meaning making things known spiritually, perhaps, but also God's presence being represented by the fire that is on the lampstand. And there is this huge illusion ...to this by Jesus, perhaps not even an illusion, ...as he would say in John chapter 8... ...that I am the light of the world. This is not a coincidence where he's at... ...and what's taking place at that time when he says that. He is alluding to this. The essence of it, it represents spiritual illumination... ...the presence of God shining over his people. And that's why it was such a big deal... ...if you remember in our past Minor Prophets... ...we're going to review in three different places... Why God would say that he took away the oil. Why the produce of the olive failed, he said. Look in Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. We could go a lot of places. I'm trying to keep it not too much for us this evening. But in Joel chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9. We'll begin there. Whenever... God's people in the Old Testament would fall into sin. We see that there's often things like locusts, which takes place in Joel. God uses the locusts to eat all the produce of the land, to dry up all the produce of the land. Um, but you see things like famine taking place because it was supposed to be a warning shot for them to come back and realize they were in sin. Joel 1.9, he says, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. So God took away their worship in that instance part of it the priest mourns and the uh the ministers of the lord the fields are destroyed the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed the wine dries up and the oil languishes so not just the produce is talked about in these instances but if we skip over it too fast we don't realize that the oil is talked about as well look over in chapter 2 of joel chapter 2 verse 19 This is after they had repented. They'd come back to God. And so, of course, what happens when they come back? God restores the blessings as per covenant, Deuteronomy 28. When the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. So their worship and also what is necessary for this lampstand and many other things. It's used for a lot of things. And you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I always found that sentence there in particular. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, and that's okay. I always found that interesting. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Not all, so when, when this would happen, what other nations would look at them and think, they would think, well, clearly their God is not the one true God. Their God is not powerful. Their God is not real because obviously they're suffering. Obviously they don't have things all together. And so really because of their sin, you you would think God withholding the blessings, they get the raw end of the deal. But actually what's taking place because of their sin, they're getting in the way Of other people that need to see God clearly, they're getting in the way of other people being able to understand and see God clearly as the one true God, as ruler, as all-powerful and all-capable. Not too dissimilar from when you and I don't represent God properly as well, but that's what's taking place here. God really being the one that gets the raw end of the deal. People not seeing Him for who He truly is. Look with me also one more place before we get back to Zechariah. In the book of Habakkuk, another minor prophet we studied, Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk 3, 16 through 17. At this point, there's been the call and response, the conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk upset with what God is doing and then God having to correct him. And then finally, in this third prayer to God, Haggai is accepting what God has to say, which is about them going into captivity. So we're on that side of it. And he accepts it. He says in verse 16 of Habakkuk chapter 3, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail. There it is and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall see we we focus on the fruit not being there and the produce of the fields not being there and the and the, the livestock suffering because of all this. And we skip over sometimes the olive if we don't uh, recognize the significance and the importance of it. But God would take those things away as well. And perhaps what that would illustrate or show to them that because they are in sin and because they are not doing uh, what God wants them to do or needs them to do, they're not being faithful, God's presence then is really not among them because of what they have done themselves. He can't and he won't be among sin. Of course, the oil was used for many things, as well as uh, instances of anointing individuals like 1 Samuel 10:1, When Samuel anoints Saul as king of Israel, there are many things that it's used for. It's got a big... Uh, big weighty symbolism behind it when we're reading through this over in Zechariah 4. So I'm back over there now. I think we we get a broader understanding here. We could chase this down a lot further, but that'll do for our time tonight. The image of this candle, this lampstand, is slightly different, but I believe it has the same general background and meaning. The anointing combined with God's illumination, talking spiritual illumination as well as God's presence going to play a part in this vision. So, verse 4, continuing on. He said, And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Right. That's exactly what we should be asking. What does all this mean? What does this mean? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might. Nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. In this last chapter of chapter three, we talked about. Joshua the high priest and how he was cleansed and being the chosen of God. This one we're talking about Zerubbabel again being the chosen of God. And the message that Zerubbabel is supposed to get is that what he's going to accomplish, the mission God has set him on, remember, what were the prophets sent to tell them? Build the temple. That's the objective. That's the goal. As well as keep leading the people faithfully, yes. But right now the temple is the focus. Get the temple built. And so the message to him is it's going to be done by God's providential care and God's power. He's going to rebuild the temple not by the use of an army of human might or of human power, but by God himself leading the way. And it's the same way with us now, with the church. You and I, we're not going to build the church with our own charisma. We're not going to build it with our own cleverness and the things that uh, are exceptional work ethic perhaps. We work, yes, but God is the one that grows us spiritually and if he wants us to, numerically as well. At the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. We're the workers. We are not the cause for success. God is the root cause for all the success that we have spiritually and everything else as the church. And so Zerubbabel probably looks at this task as monumental. Remember, he says there, verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? This is the message, and God is answering the question of, You expect me to be able to accomplish this huge feat? You expect me to be able to do that, God? The vision shows this mountain becoming a plain, becoming flat, easy to walk on, easy to cross. And the top stone or the capstone, your version might say, comes in to show that it's finished. God leveled the mountain. So Zerubbabel can climb it or just get across it, finishing the task, and then what he does here at the end, shouts of grace, grace to it, talking about giving thanks to God because he knows that it can only be done by God's power, not by his own might, not by his own planning or cleverness, but by God's power alone is this going to happen. Why is that the case? Well, we look around us. Why did we stop In in Zechariah's time, in Zerubbabel's time, why did we stop building? Because we stopped building for a couple years. We laid the foundation of the temple, and then we took a break. And it wasn't just because, ah, that sounds good, but it was because the enemies around us were pressuring us and threatening us and frustrating our purposes. And so at this time, we might be thinking, okay, God, well, how about we build the wall first? Right. Or how about we build up our our military first and then we can do these other things once we're protected. But God here is saying, I'm taking care of you. You're going to accomplish what I want you to accomplish. And he said that two or three times already in the book of Zechariah. And so he goes on. Look with me in verse eight. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. In essence, he's he's explaining what was just said. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And so it's an explanation of the past two verses. Very literal and straightforward in this case. Zerubbabel helped start the temple and it's going to be finished during his leadership. And when we look at history, we know that that was the case. Verse 10... For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. I think what he's talking about, despise the day of small things. If we remember back to Haggai, part of the problem when they were tempted to stop building again was because, well, the temple wasn't quite as big, quite as grand, right, as Solomon's temple. So it was discouraging to the older group who had seen or knew the stories very well of Solomon's temple when they saw this much smaller temple. Uh, In said another way. It's not like the glory days, perhaps. And that could discourage some people when we think back to, quote, the glory days. But what he's reminding them is the temple is not supposed to, to have to be glorious and great and gaudy, but it's God who makes it great. It's the purpose of worshiping God is why it's a great thing. And this plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, we've talked about a plumb line before, Right. A judgment figure of sorts. By the way, I was, I was at a hardware store and I actually saw a plumb line. I didn't even know they sold it or else I would have bought one whenever we <laughs> had to talk about it before in Amos and I would have hung it right here. But now I'm tempted to go get it just to have for an illustration. How about that? Old technology still works. It still shows you what straight up and down looks like. It's a measuring tool, a guidance tool. I think what he's talking about here, this being in the hands of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel here is leading the way of the building. He is helping motivate the people and he's doing it rightly, God is saying. There's that measuring line. The measure of it is going right according to God's plan and according to his obedience following after God. So follow Zerubbabel because he is being faithful and obedient to God. He goes on, and this is still the same verse, of verse 10. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Talking about eyes that see everything, the omniscience of God. He knows all. He sees all. He knows all the sin. He knows all the threats. He sees the threats and the problems that we see and some. And yet he's still saying, you're taken care of. It's going to happen. It's going to happen by my power. Verse 11, 11 through 14. He said, and I, or excuse me, then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, He's asking twice, right? Tell me, tell me what this means. What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Remember how the oil talking about being used for anointing? The two anointed that have been mentioned in the book of Zechariah. Joshua the high priest, chapter 3, was cleansed, clothed, and anointed, chosen of God. And now, also what we saw in Haggai at the end of Haggai 2, God saying to Zerubbabel, I have chosen you so these two here i believe are joshua and zerubbabel they are symbolic of these two main leaders that god is using that god is empowering not only clothing them cleansing them and choosing them but empowering them to do the work that they need to do to help bring back the temple Where God's presence can really be shown to the world. Or where a lot of the worship, all the worship is supposed to take place. The fire of the lampstand representing God's presence. And God is using Joshua and Zerubbabel to work to bring back that awesome presence in Jerusalem. And by the way, there is a hint of Zechariah chapter 4 in Revelation 11. Perhaps you can look on, into that this week and see what you think. I think that there is a tie-in there, but in Revelation 11, I'd write that down and study that. So we've seen quite a bit of things here, and, and some may not agree with me in some of this interpretation, and that's okay. We can talk about it, but we've talked a lot about when looking in Zechariah and Revelation in particular, both being apocalyptic literature, we can get lost in the little details <laughs> We can get lost in all the little things going on. And what's the big, broad picture? It's the same big, broad picture that it's been. Y'all probably might get tired of me saying this for Zechariah. But the message is what? Get to work building the temple. And also the motivation being God is taking care of it. He sees the threats. He sees the problems. But God is the one that is making it possible for you to do his work. Is it not the same for us as the church? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when Christ says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples. So here's your commission. He talks about, verse 18, I have all authority to tell you what you need to do. And so here's what you need to do, verse 19. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The commission, uh, the authority, the commission, And the means of success, verse 20, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. It's not in our own power. It's not in our own numbers, our own cleverness, our own planning and scheming. But it's in God that we have success. The same way in the Old Testament that they had success building the physical uh, temple, you and I are granted success because of God, given success because God is helping us to build the spiritual temple, the church. And so... The invitation this evening we want to offer to anyone that has need to be built up perhaps to be encouraged as we talked about this morning. If you have need of any kind, let us know as we stand together and sing.
1: Tables left prepared this evening. I do believe we have uh, one at least with us this evening that needs to partake. If you would, sermon number 38. 38, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. We'll sing this before the Lord's Supper this evening. Sing just the first verse of 38. Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I fain would take my stand The shed table's left prepared for any of those that haven't had the opportunity yet today. If we could see a show of hands. Who needs to partake. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity to assemble again here this afternoon, Father, and we thank you for this opportunity to surround your table, Father. We pray that you'll be with those for a number who've not who are partaking this evening and Father, uh, help them focus on the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made for each one of us now as we partake this bread that represents Christ's broken body. Let us uh, let us partake in a manner well-pleased in thy sight. In Jesus' name we pray.
2: as we come to this table, take up this fruit of the vine that represents that precious blood that Christ shed for us. Help us to always remember that great sacrifice that He made for us out of love and gave us the great gifts of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: also want to take time to give anyone that has not had opportunity to give back to the Lord yet to do so. Uh, we'll have a blessing and we'll set the tray back in the foyer on the table. If you'll bow with. Father in heaven, we thank you for the many things that you bless us with, Father. We know that everything that we have has come from you and because of your a loving kindness towards each one of us, Father. Father, if we take opportunity to give back to you, we pray that we will do so willingly and cheerfully, in a manner and well pleasing Thy sight. In Jesus' name we pray.
2: Certainly is good to see everyone this evening. Been a great day. Able to have two services and worship God. And a wonderful potluck. If you didn't make the potluck, you missed something. I think it was probably the largest turnout that we have had for potluck. I counted seventy six. It's pretty hard to move around like ants to get accurate accurate count. <laughs> accurate count. Uh, Somebody may have got a little bit different count, but uh, it it was in that neighborhood, 75 to 80. Uh, If you didn't uh, didn't attend that, uh, we have those the first of every month. Uh, This one taken care of May, but uh, beginning June, we'll we'll start on the first Sunday of June and have those again. So uh, uh, come prepared to uh, stay in fellowship with us and enjoy a great meal. if you haven't picked up a bulletin, pick up a bulletin. Uh, a lot of information in there, and I don't know about you, but uh, I keep one laying around, probably two a lot of times, laying around the house, one in my Bible and one on, on the table somewhere uh, to glance at it periodically. And uh, uh, I guess maybe it's age it's catching up with me, but I can't remember all of those things, and I need reminders from time to time. So uh, make use of this uh, bulletin. Uh, Cynthia does a great job in, in getting it ready for us and putting it out. So let's make the best use that we can of it. Uh, I'm not going to cover the things that are in the bulletin, uh, but Juan S. Brister uh, has been discharged and is now home. And also, uh, Joe was telling me this morning that Michael Brook, Brooker, a friend of theirs, Uh, 50 years old and had Alzheimer's, had passed away this morning. So let's remember that family.